You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. I'm a firm believer that a part of this BLM movement, part of this reparation movement, part of the backs of the land movement is for us to create the technologies necessary to combat this environmental racism and to create solutions. I think there's a huge future in that, right? There's a huge future in us using technology to solve the problems of the, of the people who experience them by the people who experience them, right? Because who knows the solution better than the people who are actually going through it themselves? And so, uh, you know, that to me is where I hope ag tech and green tech can really come into communities of color to support us freeing or liberating ourselves from these institutional errors that have been created prior to us. Well, it's not necessarily problems that we've created for ourselves, but they are problems that we need to solve because no one's going to solve them for us. That was Alexis Mena, multidisciplinary farmer, chef, artist, and one of the founders of Brooklyn-based farm tech co-op, Universe City. In the agriculture and environmental spaces and beyond, technology has the potential to dramatically alter our collective future. However, as Alexis says, that technology's potential lies not solely in its existence, but in who it's created by and for. Following up on Black History Month, we turn our gaze forward and consider what it means for Black food leaders to cultivate a better future for their communities, and thus, for all. From producing new techniques for use in rural agriculture to increasing representation as food entrepreneurs, members of Black communities across the country are looking inward to move forward. By responding dynamically to community needs, they demonstrate that the power and vision for transformation come from within. This week on Meet and 3, we get a taste for how some are reimagining the future of Black foodways. I'm Matt Patterson, and this is Meet and 3 on HRM. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and three. In our first story, Katie Ruther examines one way that technology is helping some southern farmers hold on to their land. A type of fungi that grows underground, truffles have become one of the most expensive foods in the world. The rarest varieties can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars per pound. For centuries, the coveted truffles we know and love today were found exclusively in European countries such as France, Italy, and Spain, where they grow in the wild. Recorded truffle cultivation began in France in the early 1800s. It wasn't until the 1970s that advancements in cultivation techniques spurred the growth of truffle farming worldwide. Now you can find truffles and truffle products everywhere from Michelin-starred restaurants to your neighborhood grocer. As the truffle market expands, so too do the opportunities for producers. If you walk into a place with fresh truffles, you tell them you have them, you know, you're all of a sudden 
the guest of honor. So I think people get that, that there's a market for it. When you have fresh truffles, you just, you know, open the lid and the people who know their senses perk up. This is Nancy Roseborough, founder and CEO of Mycorrhiza Biotech. Nancy got into the truffle industry nearly 20 years ago as a means of preserving her North Carolina-based family farm. In Alamance County, farms and homesteads are being transformed into subdivisions. This development increases taxes for, and potentially prices out, surrounding landowners. To save her family farm, Nancy sought to keep it in agricultural status while also making enough money to pay the taxes. For this, she turned to truffles. My grandparents raised uh, tobacco and dairy, and I knew I wasn't going to do either of those. Uh, One, tobacco is very complicated. It's one of those technologies that's passed from generation to generation. And when my mom graduated from college, she ran away from the farm. So it skipped a generation. So that knowledge is no longer there. And two, dairy, just for my observation, is you never got a vacation. It's twice a day, every day, you know, in perpetuity. So my mom actually found an article in the Washington Post on truffles. And truffles grow on the roots of trees. So I'm thinking, well, trees, how hard could it be? Unfortunately for Nancy and for the many others looking to produce truffles in the U.S., they have proven to be notoriously difficult to cultivate. They require a relatively high soil pH, plentiful water, adequate drainage, and clearly defined seasons without extreme temperatures. Aspiring truffle growers purchase tree seedlings whose roots have been inoculated with truffle fungus spores. Farmers must raise the pH of their intended truffle orchard, often with the addition of lime, and for optimal success, remove all existing roots to reduce competition from other fungi. To say truffle farming is risky is an understatement. Since the first truffle was cultivated in the U.S. in 1987, truffle orchards nationwide have experienced varying degrees of success. Coming from the corporate background, one of the things I did as a project manager and strategic planning is addressing your risks. So I purchased inoculated seedlings from a vendor on the West Coast, and they send them to you and say, raise your pH and here you go. Well, you don't know about the tree you're getting. You don't know if it has the right fungus on the roots. You don't know if it has the right level of fungus on the roots. You don't know where you're putting it as as far as the soil composition. And then for sweet potatoes, I can plant them in March. I dig them up in August. I know what I have. Truffles, it can be a decade or more before you know what you have. After Nancy bought her inoculated seedlings, she received no additional support or instruction about how to bring her truffles into production. In response, she started a company to fill those gaps and reduce the risks associated with truffle cultivation. Even when we first got started, there weren't a lot of companies putting science behind uh, truffle cultivation. There was no testing of roots. There was no evaluation of roots. There was no evaluation of of soil. And there was a lot of secrecy around even that part. Now, obviously, we don't reveal our protocols and our techniques or our systems, but we're pretty much an open book when it comes to telling people, you know, what you need to do, how you need to do it, the schedules that you need to follow to make sure you come into production. 
In addition to selling tree seedlings inoculated with truffle fungus spores, Mycorrhiza Biotech has developed fungi DNA sequencing technology to determine not only what fungus is present on tree roots, but also the amount of fungus present. Inadequate inoculation can spell disaster, leaving the truffle spores vulnerable to attack or the possibility of being outcompeted. Think of a glove, and you got five fingers on a glove. Well, if one of those fingers is not gloved, that whole hand is exposed. Not as The thumb may not be as bad as the ring finger, but there's still exposure there. And if they're aggressive pathogenic organisms, they can get in through that exposed finger and take out everything. So it's important not just what's on the roots, but the level of mycorrhization on those roots. And I don't know that other people are doing that. Although Nancy and her team initially faced skepticism about the viability and market opportunity for their techniques, their success speaks for itself. In recent years, Burwell Farms, an early customer of Mycorrhiza Biotech, became one of the most productive truffle orchards in the world, producing an estimated 200 pounds of truffles on their inaugural two-acre plot. Indeed, as Nancy says... The proof has been in the pudding. Considering the product's market value, truffles offer an attractive option for farmers to make a living. With Mycorrhiza Biotech, Nancy hopes to increase small farm viability in the South by making truffle cultivation more accessible. The good thing about truffles, although the entry price point is high, you only need a few acres to do it. And it's those few acres coming into production is enough to keep your family farm in the family, in ag status and producing. And it doesn't require a lot of farming technology. So that was kind of the point about getting it into the hands of the small farmers. You need some 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 knowledge, some history, some technology, but you don't need a lot. The challenge has been is that price point and we're working with the state and with the federal government to try to bring that price point down. Setting up a truffle orchard can cost tens of thousands of dollars per acre. From preparing the site, to purchasing and planting the seedlings, to maintaining the plot and monitoring its progress, each step requires significant investment. To reduce the financial barriers to entry, Nancy and her team are trying to cut customer costs by creating more efficient methods for seedling inoculation and truffle DNA sequencing. They also seek out financial aid from government agencies to assist farmers with absorbing some of the costs. The number of Black farmers and farms is diminishing, uh, and this is an option with just a few acres to maybe keep that number from falling so fast. You don't need a lot of acres. You only need a few. That lineage of farming history, is it might be getting a little weaker, but it's still there. And if you tap into it, it can be revived again. It's just getting people to the table, figuring out how to make it work, working with the state and federal governments to make money available to help people start start those farms, um, and then finding new ways to use truffles. Helping farmers hold on to their land requires not just the ability to grow truffles successfully, but also the ability to sell them. According to Nancy, Mycorrhiza Biotech's Bianchetto truffle is the introductory truffle 
its relative affordability offers chefs and diners alike new opportunities to experience and experiment with truffles. Our chef out of Atlanta, um, he's like a Southern cuisine genius. And he's figured out a way, because most truffles are applied on like the Italian or the French side in your sauces and, you know, soups and things like that. He made us a salmon hash with the fresh truffles. And it was amazing. Or he's the one who did the strawberry shortcake with the truffle sauce. So there are different applications for it that you may not think. Whether you like truffles in your salmon hash, on top of your strawberry shortcake, or some other way entirely, their endless culinary possibilities will pair with innovative cultivation technology to drive the industry forward. Nancy Roseborough is on the leading edge of that wave, forging symbiotic relationships of her own across the trade to build a thriving, truffle-filled future. Although many of us picture rural areas when we think of food production, urban agriculture continues to flourish nationwide. Liv Cummins-Berkowitz takes us to Oakland, California, to learn how one urban farm project is empowering the next generation of farmers, chefs, leaders, and eaters. Kelly Carlisle is seeding the future of Black foodways. She's the founder and executive director of Acta Nonverba Youth Urban Farm Project, an organization based in Oakland, California, that runs three youth-led urban farms, a CSA, after-school programs, and a camp. I recently had the privilege of chatting with Kelly about her work. Our mission is to elevate life for youth and their families in East Oakland and beyond. We have three farms in the city of Oakland that are run by youth age five to now about 25. The young people plan, plant, harvest, and sell the produce that we grow. And 100% of the profits are placed into individual savings accounts that can only be used for educational purposes for each participant. Additionally, our CSA, um, because our farms are very, very small and the um, need is so great in our community, we work with folks that we call our sister farmers who are BIPOC farmers in the Central Coast and Central Valley to supplement our CSA. Kelly, who is from Oakland, founded Acton on Verba in 2010. She works to expand access to fresh food and also to empower her community and particularly the youth with the skills they need to feed themselves. In an area like East Oakland, where, you know, we've been, we've been talking for over 10 years about food access and, um, and being in a food desert, we've started using the term food apartheid, right? Because this is by design. It's, you know, there's nothing stopping the city of Oakland from having a grocery store, full service grocery store um, within walking distance of the communities that we serve. We're instilling in our young people, our young black, brown, uh, Middle Eastern young people that their voice matters and that if they um, and that they have the power within them to change their situation, to change um you know, lack of access to food, lack of access to to clean streets and um, better outcomes for themselves and their families. So when we talk about sovereignty of food or land or those things, 
it's because we know that we deserve better. For Kelly, the future of Black foodways is intimately connected to remembering and reclaiming knowledge that has been lost. More and more Black folks, Black and brown folks are reclaiming their right to grow food and to, and to you know, have a, have a relationship with food. Because we live in such densely packed urban areas, a lot of times folks forget, you know, that a lot of us came from agricultural backgrounds. Our grandparents, aunts and uncles may have had a garden. And so our work is to try to, part of our work is to try to remind folks that we can feed ourselves. And there's something about growing food, either for yourself or for your community, that just makes you feel accomplished, that makes you feel like you're a part of something greater. I asked Kelly why, at this moment, so many people are interested in growing their own food. I think that it is the growing pressure and realization that capitalism is hurting everyone. We're in a moment of chaos, and I think folks may be looking for something that they can hold on to, something that they can control, something that they can contribute to their own um, well-being. As much as Kelly is dedicated to her community in Oakland, she has also worked with folks from around the world in the slow food and food sovereignty movements. In 2011, Kelly was a Bon Appetit Good Food Fellow. In 2012, she served as a U.S. delegate to Slow Food International's annual conference. And she currently is a Castanea Fellow a national fellowship for those working for a more racially just food system. Almost immediately when I started growing food, I felt a connection, like a, a worldwide connection, a, something that I'd, I'd never felt before um, in any of the work that I'd done. It's been gratifying to know that farming and growing and uh, stewardship of the earth is not just a... Kelly thing. It's not just an Acton on Verba thing. It's not just a um, a Bay Area thing, but it goes worldwide. You know that folks are really concerned with all the things that are going on and our ability to feed ourselves, our families, our communities, our countries. It's just been it's been wonderful to know that I'm not alone in this work. Kelly is resisting food apartheid in Oakland by teaching young children how to grow food on small parcels of land in the middle of their city. And she's not alone. In response to a globalized industrial food system that has failed to sufficiently feed so many people, folks across the world are rebuilding their connection with food and relearning forgotten agricultural practices to better nourish their communities. Before we go to break, I want to shout out a brand new series coming to HRN in the very near future. Hosted by Zella Palmer, Culture and Flavor is a podcast about food and culture centered in Black and Indigenous foodways. We'll play the trailer in just a minute, and if you like what you hear, subscribe so you can be the first to hear it when their season premieres. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
Culture and Flavor is a new series from Heritage Radio Network that's all about food and culture centered in Black and Indigenous foodways. Hosted by myself, Zella Palmer, right here in New Orleans, Louisiana. I am a writer, professor, filmmaker, culinary historian, mom, cook, and grounded in my benevolent ancestors' legacies. I'm so excited, y'all, to share with you highly vibrational conversations with some well-known and unsung heroes in the culinary world, friends who have become family from all over the world. Breaking bread is an art, and on Culture and Flavor, we are painting murals. I'm the child that know all the history of everybody's household. <laughs> Good, bad, and ugly. Because they talk about it now. My cousins and them, girl, you know everything about everybody. I say, I sure do. I need to put this on tape recorder. <laughs> Each episode, we'll hear from cultural bearers, chefs, farmers, scholars, barbecue pitmasters, and more. Where there is flavor, there is history. I'm excited for him, you know, his vision, you know, just as a, as a black man coming from the 1940s in the South uh, to see his vision be able to be um, acknowledged in such a way. And that's huge for me, you know, as a, as a son to be able to give him that moment. Join me on Culture and Flavor and all of my guests as we share stories that will have you praise dancing, cooking, conjuring, and inspiring your culinary journey. Subscribe to Culture and Flavor wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, mm -hmm. incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, and so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, and that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital online. At the end of the course, students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like what is rennet and like why is this cheese so expensive and can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheeseStateUniversity.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Up next, Sasha DuBose speaks with an entrepreneur who's working to uplift his community by expanding to another one. Derek Falcon is the founder of Cloudy Donut, the first Black-owned business in Brooklyn Heights, New York. The 100% vegan donut shop aims to serve delicious donuts and close socioeconomic gaps between Black and white communities. I'm a real person. When you see me, you could pull up. When I give you these donuts, they're going to blow your mind. And that's enough. I'm here to tell the truth and move the, move the culture forward. Everything for me is about moving Black people 
forward, creating that level of black mobility and more specifically, have a conversation with white people how to bridge the gap between prejudices, stereotypes and racism. The concept of reverse gentrification is key to Cloudy Donut's mission. When we think about gentrification, we typically talk about small businesses and communities being pushed out. However, Derek and his partner, Zodi Ruffin, who coined the term, are putting a new spin on it. I think putting a positive tone on reverse gentrification is such a 360 to what we what we know as gentrification. So for me, I was one of those people who associated gentrification with a negative tone. So being able to now put it in a positive space and to create inclusion for black and white people. For Derek and Zoditu, reverse gentrification goes far beyond putting black businesses into predominantly white neighborhoods. It was about how can I now bring my voice into a room where that there's it's voiceless? There, there is no me in this room. How can I now um, express my point of view? And how can I also provide this community with a product or service that they might not necessarily be familiar with? And then have a story behind that product or service that can bridge the gap between a lot of stereotypes, prejudices that exist in the world, and more specifically, close the wealth gap in America between black and white folks. I'm coming from a space of visibility. Your young black son could walk into my shop and be like, damn, he looked just like me. Wear the same clothes I wore, talk like me. I probably could do something like this. Uplifting Black-owned businesses everywhere is at the core of reverse gentrification. When it comes to reverse gentrification, when these Black businesses and these brown businesses are in your neighborhood, make it a point to support them. Make it a point to recognize them, but more specifically, make it a point to uplift. Flipping the script on what gentrification means can lead to a promising future for Black-owned businesses from Brooklyn Heights to Bed-Stuy. So the future of food, as you, if you follow my path, will be directly related to a trail of where the money is and how you can give back to your people in the most profound way. So you got to realize, like, if I'm able to generate capital in affluent neighborhoods and then I'm able to hire all these young black kids, they stay employed. So once they stay employed, then black people come into the space and they buy the product and they see black faces. Now you got these white people coming into the space. They buying the product along with black people. We got these young black kids that are working for us. They getting paid. And then we teaching them to put their money back into their communities because they do live in Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, and Harlem. That's the 360. So when they go back to Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, and Harlem, they support more black businesses. Who are they? Who might not have the opportunity that we got in Brooklyn Heights? If you want to support more Black-owned businesses that are reverse gentrifying their neighborhoods, check out Jarrell's Better Burger in Lower Manhattan or Good Part & Co. in Baltimore. Not at NYC or Baltimore? You can find more information on all of these businesses and more in our show notes. To round out today's episode, we hear from Taylor Early about how building the future requires honoring the past. Sometimes it's difficult to imagine our day-to-day lives in the years to come as any different from now, especially when it comes to how and what we'll eat, and when you take into consideration things like championing food sovereignty, equity, and sustainability for communities of color. To understand what it might take to create that future, I sat down with the effervescent food writer, Deb Freeman. After a year or so of following along with Deb on setting the table, I wanted to know if there was a conversation or moment that had shifted how she thinks African-American foodways will evolve. 
my very first thought when you were asking the question was talking to Chef Chris Scott, who's up in New York, and he does what is called, you know, what he is calling uh, Amish soul food, and he's an extraordinary chef, and he is using his background growing up in Amish country, um, but his family was from Virginia, and um, and really kind of mixing those two worlds and then taking it to another place. And so for me, when I think about the future of soul food, I think about you know, using elements from our our background and from our heritage, but then how can we do it in new and unexpected ways? Not to say that there's anything wrong with the staples that we all know and love, of course, though that's comfort food and that has its place. But you know, but because of chefs like Chef Scott and um, Adrian Cheetah, Mishama Bailey, because of them, you know, we are able to look at it in a new lens. Prophesizing occasionally requires a dash of playfulness. A great concrete example of this can be heard in the Future of Black Food episode of Setting the Table, where Chef Scott, who you just heard Deb talk about, recounts the time that he turned red beans and rice into hummus. Sounds a little wild, but Deb explains that this approach to honoring yet evolving staples is key. He's a great example because he is very steeped and well-versed in the background and the heritage and the legacy of Black food, but he's also very determined to kind of turn it, turn it on its ear. And so uh, that's, that's exactly you know, what Black food needs. When dealing with something abstract, such as the future, it's useful to use another context to make that thing more tangible, like using gardening in schools to help kids comprehend nutrition and healthy eating. I was curious if there is a parallel industry that Deb feels is important to understanding better our roles in stewarding soul food's legacy. I mean, I, I would think about black art in that way. You know, I just saw an exhibition in uh, Savannah, Georgia. It was called Elegies and it was an incredible exhibition. It was all still life. And so you had kind of traditional still lifes of fruit or whatever, but they were done with fruit from Jamaica and from Bermuda, like from the islands. And so there's an homage to our culture. For me, I guess that would be the closest parallel because there is a nod to that still life type format that you have when you look at a traditional piece. But then, you know, what can we do to make it innovative and interesting and move it forward? To close out our conversation, I asked Deb for a roundup of the values that she considers crucial to hold and build upon as we, and that's the collective we, ensure the future of Black food waste. I think that you cannot move forward if you don't understand the, not only the what the thing is with Black food, but why it was created the way it was. I think it's difficult to move forward unless you honor that legacy. I think in making something new, creating something new, that in and of itself is the honoring. That's the sacredness of it. And I think the second value would be just not only honoring the food, but the people who made it possible for it to be where it is today. There are still so many nameless and faceless people that we do not know who still moved Black food forward and not only moved it forward, but were able to take traditions from Africa and keep our legacy alive. And so while so many things were stripped from us and taken from us, 400 years later, we are still able to hold on to some of that cultural memory. And that's because of every single person, who, whether it be a technique or by using similar ingredients, they were able to keep our traditions alive. And to that, we owe them a debt of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Well... 
I owe Deb a debt of gratitude for her meaningful insights and the many laughs shared. If you haven't had a chance to listen to Deb Freeman on Setting the Table from Whetstone Radio Collective or keep up with her amazing work on Instagram, I recommend it. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Katie Ruther, Liv Cummins-Berkowitz, Sasha Dubose, and Taylor Early. Meet and 3 is produced by Kevin Chang-Barnum, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Matt Patterson. Our audio engineer for this episode is me, Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Hi, HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.